Well, brethren and sisters, we've been certainly enriched by uh, the words of Brother John in the discourse around the last days of Jesus Christ. The theme has been the from the upper room to the empty tomb. And this is the fourth and concluding study to the subject, the glory. Thanks, Brother John. What a privilege it is to be here, to, to share this bread and this cup. That Jesus would invite you and me alongside him. And so we're thankful, aren't we, that we're here together with our Lord fellowship with him in this way that he's asked us to to remember him and we give thanks to our God don't we this weekend it's been such a blessing that we can be together like this when most of the world cannot and so we're, we're thankful for the great fellowship that we've shared and we're thankful to those who have worked hard to to organize uh, this weekend for us I hope that together we've been able to draw closer to our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father. That through following Jesus from the upper room to the empty tomb, we've been able to, in some way, develop a deeper understanding of what Christ endured for us. A deeper understanding of the suffering and the glory and how we, each one of us, might better follow him. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are told that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We continually learn from the teacher We too, each one of us, can have the same joy in our vision, the same hope that drives us, the same focus to the future that gives us energy to endure our sufferings in here and today. Christ says, the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so we meet together to be strengthened in this, to to build our courage, to build our strength through this bread and this cup, to remember that participation that we have, that, that responsibility we have as the body of Christ to ourselves be given, to be poured out, for others. The incredible incredible joy set before Jesus, the glory, wasn't the resurrection. It was to be with God, a fellowship with God that words cannot describe. And this driving force 
for Jesus is so evident in, in the gospel records. Here in, in Luke's gospel and, and chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I've, for so many years, I've, I've read that and sort of really thought it's talking about the crucifixion for Jesus to be taken up on the cross. When we compare it to um, the language used in Mark about the ascension, and when we look at things like John's gospel, we realize that what he was focused on was this time with his father. Reading from John 13 and verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, yes, he was headed to the cross, but he was going somewhere far, far, far beyond that. Jesus was looking beyond the cross. Can you look beyond your cross? It's hard, isn't it? Can you look beyond your suffering? When we take Christ's lead and when we look up and look past the toil of today, what do we see? Isn't it glorious? Paul wrote to the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Further to the Corinthians, he wrote, For this light's momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you know, at times, brothers and sisters, we might struggle to see that. We might struggle to call what we're going through lights and, and, and you know, a, a sort of momentary thing. It feels that we're sort of stuck in it and it, it's sort of, there's no way out. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, was able to look beyond the pain the insults, the shame of the cross, to Christ, his sufferings was not worth comparing. Isn't that incredible? What he endured was not worth comparing with the glory. To Christ, his suffering was light, momentary affliction. Preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. The joy was set before him. And I wonder if this was the departure that Moses and Elijah spoke to him about. The exodus that they talked to him about when they appeared to him at the transfiguration. We know that he experienced that glory upon the mountain. 
And so in all our suffering, let us never forget the joy that is set before us. As we share the bread and the cup this morning, we remember this shared joy. We remember Christ's words of of longing, his anticipation of a future when you and I would be able to share this bread and cup again with him. And so as now we consider the glory, we realize that we don't have a detailed description of the actual resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, in a sense, uh, an intimate family moment. Something so very, very precious between father and son. We can, we can barely imagine that most indescribable, wonderful moment when God breathed into Christ's nostrils the breath of life, the breath of eternal life. As Paul later wrote, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But what we do get to experience is the resurrection and the glory through the eyes of the few disciples who spent their lives with Jesus. And we can imagine, can't we, their grief and their pain and their confusion over what had happened in the hours and days before Let's first consider Mary Magdalene. She'd never cried so much as she had in the last three days. They had been the bitterest days of her life. She had watched her teacher, her friend, Jesus, brutally murdered. Brutally. And now Mary wanted to do the best that she could for him. She knew that Jesus had already been prepared for burial. You see, it wasn't a practical thing. It wasn't something that when we think of our loved ones and and when they pass away, the practicalities of that, this was something tender. This was an act of love. This was an act of, of devotion. Yesterday, she had ventured out to the market to buy spices to anoint his dead body. She'd been up late the night before, preparing the ointment. She hadn't slept well. Mary got up before dawn. Her heart was still heavy. We know how that feels, don't we, when we get up early? It's dark. It's cold. It's the darkest and the coldest it's ever been. And as she made her way to the tomb, the sun was beginning to rise. What did Mary find? 
the empty tomb. So she runs to tell his, his best friends, Peter and John, yet not realizing that the Son of God has risen. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I feel a close kinship with Peter here. It's much of my school experience. How fast do you think Peter and John ran to the tomb? I think they would have broken their personal best, don't you? You probably don't see it too often, um, you older people, but uh, I'm very fortunate to, to work in a school and to see children every day. And sometimes you see children running so fast that they look like they're about to take off. When we came out of lockdown last year, I was very privileged to be actually outside when the bell rang, the, the first recess after lockdown. Wow. Never seen kids run so fast through the schoolyard in my life with joy. But here we have Peter and John really running, you know, just with all the energy they have. God had breathed into Jesus the breath of eternal life. He was a new creation, the firstborn from the dead. He was no longer in the tomb where he had been laid. And John arrives and he peers in the entrance of the tomb whilst Peter clambers inside. And it's a beautiful little picture, isn't it, of the diversity of discipleship with their journey to the tomb. They've both got the same destination, but there's a different pace. When they reach the tomb... I'm sure they're both in their hearts just longing to, to find out what's, what's happening. John is sort of at the door, whilst Peter is probably just clambering almost on his hands and knees getting inside. Out of breath, Peter sees the linen cloths that Joseph and Nicodemus had used. And intrigued, he sees the face cloth neatly folded and separate from the linen cloths. And John joins him in the empty tomb. And it says that he saw and believed. The empty tomb. Well, the tomb wasn't quite empty, was it? There was linen. There was disciples. There were even angels inside, we learn, all in the tomb. The one person who was meant to be in there was not. And the empty tomb is such a fitting symbol of the risen Lord. And God has always worked with the small and the lowly things. And here we see this emptiness, this nothingness inside this tomb, this absence 
has the most significance in human history. He has risen. I think these are three of the most important words ever spoken. And it's no surprise that they're the words of God. Reading from Mark in chapter 16. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. This is the uh, angel speaking to Peter and John. Oh, this is, sorry, after Peter and John have, have left the tomb. The implication of, of those three words spoken by the angel, they shatter the bonds of death that have held humanity captive since Adam and Eve. He has risen. And these words, the, the, the resurrection of Christ, hold power, don't they? We, we're, we're taught by Paul of the power of the resurrection. Not only in the future, as we long for and wait for the day when those who have fallen asleep uh, will be raised, but it has a power for us today. He has risen. We can say these words to ourselves when things get tough, that we might be raised up, that we might remember that we are together on this journey with Christ. He has risen. To remember the power and the purpose of God in these three words can lift the heaviest of hearts. He has risen. And it wasn't only Jesus that was raised at this time, was it? Going back in the record to in time and reading from Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, this is during the crucifixion and the earthquake that occurred. It says, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I don't think I'd ever really read this carefully. There's something that intrigues me about this passage. I think I've read over it so many times without really thinking about it. This occurred... This resurrection of the saints occurred during the crucifixion. But we're told that they didn't come out and into the holy city until after his resurrection. What were they doing for three days? Maybe it was a combined fraternal. But we're given a clue, aren't we, with uh, Matthew's use of this word, the holy city. 
There's something deeper, isn't there? There's something rich. There's, there's sort of a, a lesson and a message going on here in, in, in what's being told to us. The holy city, it's not used very often. We think of Revelation, don't we, in the new Jerusalem. So what is the significance of these events for us? What's the message? Why this delay? Well, we know that Christ is the first fruits. Yes, that earthquake, the Spirit of God. We thought about this in the last session. The Spirit of God coursing through the ground in grief and anguish brought to life those who had recently been buried in the graves, the saints. But it's important for us to realize that in terms of the resurrection, in terms of the glory, that Christ is the first fruits. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We long for the day when the dead shall be raised, when Christ, the firstborn from the dead, will be joined by a multitude of those who have also endured much for the joy and the glory set before them. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. But we read in in Mark's gospel of of two that had a very special encounter with him on the roads. Cleopas and another disciple had this special meeting with Jesus on the journey to Emmaus. And here's what Jesus said to them when he spoke to those two disciples about all that he had Endured. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus was saying that what, what you have just witnessed, what I have just endured, this crucifixion and now this, the resurrection and the soon-to-be uh, ascension and unity with my Father, is what this is all about. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's why Paul, when he came to Corinth, said that he had determined that they would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that is the heart of the gospel. We have a book, don't we? We're privileged to be able to read it freely and without hindrance that is entirely focused on the message of Christ's purpose and God's plan through him, the suffering and the glory. These two are intrinsically intertwined. They are fundamental to what God is doing with his creation. They're what God wants to communicate to us through his Christ. The suffering and the glory are what Peter would go on to describe in his first letter as the 
spirit of Christ, the essence of Christ. And he talks about this spirit of Christ, what Christ means of the suffering and the glory being seen in the lives of the faithful of old, of the saints. And we can think, can't we, of monumental Old Testament passages and prophecies that speak of the suffering and the glory, that speak in particular ones that we've, we've touched on this weekend, like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. And then we can do more, can't we? We can have a think about all those individuals that we talk about as being shadows of Christ, Joseph and Daniel, and just about everyone we look at, we can see glimmers of Jesus in their lives. And then there's even more subtle threads and traces of Jesus and all that he has done for us in the words of this book. I wanted to share this one with you, possibly one of the earliest, pointing to Christ's suffering and glory right back at the very beginning. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that right back in Genesis, in chapter 1, when we're getting detail of the creation, when we have in such really a few short verses the creation of everything, that we're given this little bit of detail about the plants. We're not necessarily given details about how the sun works or how the, the planets and the stars or the ecosystems and the weather systems and all those other things, but we know the detail that are, that's given us in Genesis is so important. And here we have um, this account, this record of the creation of the, of the plants. And we're told that they were to be yielding seeds. So before man and woman were even created, God had already inbuilt into creation itself a real-life model of his plan and purpose, the suffering and the glory. You see, a seed is buried in the ground. And that little seed is used up. It's like a little store of life. And it's poured out. It's devoured. But the result is life. And life abundance. Jesus himself understood this. I can imagine him Every time he picked up a seed, it giving him comfort that in the very fabric of God's creation was a reminder that he too would be buried in the ground, but that it had deep purpose and that it was something that would be so fruitful. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this spoke to Christ. It resonated with his life's journey. So next time you pick up a seed, remember you hold a living parable of the suffering and the glory. May our lives also speak of the suffering and the glory. May others be able to read us, see us, and see in some way the Spirit of Christ in our lives. As we share this bread and this cup, may we also join with Christ in his sufferings and in the glory, we pray. This weekend, we've followed our Lord Jesus from the upper room to the empty tomb. We've considered, haven't we, the mindsets of both Judas and Jesus. And we now receive with thanks freely this bread and this cup into our hands and remember that mindset of Jesus to not one of what will I get, but what can I give to you? Whilst Jesus Christ was on trial, we've been reminded that in the face of every element of human wickedness, Christ remained faithful. And in fact, rather than Jesus being on trial, we've been reminded that we need to look deep into our hearts We need to be able to identify the attitudes and the the wickedness that we see in the others when we read through these events. And we know that it's Jesus who is in the judgment seat. We've listened carefully, very carefully, to each word that he spoke on the cross. And this morning we've peered into the tomb with Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And so we conclude our thoughts this weekend in the same place that we began them, in Bethany. And we think about the ascension of Jesus. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And so as we meet together this morning and as we are once again blessed by Jesus through this cup and this wine, as he lifts up his hands to us, may we too worship with them. We can imagine the awestruck group, can't we, of people that saw Jesus ascend to heaven, including, I'm sure, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, And we respond to what they witnessed in exactly the same way, with worship, with great joy, 
with praise and blessing to God Most High as we remember Christ this morning. As we offer our thanks, we can share in this jubilation. And so when we consider the suffering and the glory, when we think of the death and the resurrection of Jesus throughout our days and particularly as we meet together to share this feast, let's also remember the ascension of our Lord, that joy that was set before him. It's an incredible moment. This unity with his father is the moment that Jesus had focused on throughout his ministry, throughout his suffering. And it's a symbol to us of the hope that we can have in the midst of our trials. As we consider our place and our life in Christ this morning, we'll finish with the words of Paul, realizing that we've not only been raised up with Jesus but we can ascend with our Lord too. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory.